We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. What's the score? Are you winning this week? I, I would say so, yeah. I think we're having a good week. I'm house-sitting for some friends uh, up near Denver. And uh, just going to the gym, hanging out, drinking a lot of coffee, mm. uh, doing a lot of protein shakes, trying to focus on, uh, you know, my... For years when I exercised, it was always to stay really skinny. And I think now I'm trying to just feel comfortable in my body and maybe take on some tone and, and do some different things. So I've been having fun at the gym. Um, I have this place for another six or seven days. And I've just been, I went on TikTok live last night and we had a really positive couple hours just talking about transition stuff and Christian stuff and hmm. the state of the world. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Which comes first, Jesus I, or transition? In terms of this conversation? I guess in terms of... Or in general. In terms of life, life I would say Jesus. Let's see. Yeah, I would say, I would say Jesus. You know, I grew up Christian. Um, I went to a Christian school. Um, I struggled with a lot of things. And I, I transitioned because I believed that um, there was something wrong with me that could be fixed. Mm. And I just... I, I kind of dove wholeheartedly into this idea and I tried it and I realized after like eight years that it wasn't working. And so I detransitioned and then I had a really hard time like acclimating with society and I lost a bunch of friends and people were, you know, telling me that, Oh, now I was just a cisgendered white male and that I was the part of the problem in the world. Yeah, and, yeah. and, yeah. uh, then I, I just felt like, well, I can't, nobody's really seeing me as a man anyway. I'll just go back to being a, a woman. Hmm. And I did. And I, I dove really deep into it the second time around. You know, I, I ended up getting uh, an orchiectomy and um, later on full bottom surgery, uh, breast augmentation. I really thought that this was the solution. And I thought that my detransition kind of affirmed that like, Oh, I try, I thought that it was right. I wasn't sure. Then I retransitioned and then like that detransition period kind of affirmed how, uh, I really am trans, you know? And I also had a lot of people in my ear saying like, you really are trans. That's just internalized transphobia, and mm. internalized trans misogyny. And I, I believed it. You know, I really believed it because my whole life I have felt that there is something wrong with me. And I I didn't know what it was. I thought it was gender. Uh, you know, I thought it was a lot of things. Yeah. But nothing worked. The, the concept of trans is a little slippery. Because, I mean, if you look at the category, the created category of the trans kid, 
Like if that exists, then a bunch of things follows from this thing called the trans kid. How do we know what a trans kid is, is, is a whole question. But if, if the trans kids exist, then something needs to happen to enable them to be trans. But you can't decouple being trans from transitioning. It's more like you're not trans. It's the same thing as like, uh, you know, back in the olden days, you were a Miller, like John Miller or, you know, John Smith. Um, right. Trans is something one does. And the, the ident the, the, just the relationship between the identity and what that identity consists of is it's really murky. And it's just assumed that it is an inherent category that, is what you are, but just by dint of the fact of what it is, it's something that you do or something that you do to yourself or something that is done to you. Right. And I bring that up that. Yeah. just trying to wrestle with that. I'm, I'm wondering what has trans meant to you over the course of, of your life, like wanting to be trans, being trans, detransitioning, then retransitioning. Now, where you are now, how has that category or that identity changed over time? Well, I think when I first kind of got a hold of the idea of trans, it was, you know, uh, something that you did. It wasn't really something that you were. Um, so most what, of the people what year that is this, uh, I first started my transition in 2002. Okay. Um, uh, 2002. And I, you know, I had heard about transitioning on like Sally, Jesse, Raphael, stuff like that, you know, daytime talk show. And I saw these people and I was like, oh, maybe that's, maybe that's, that's me, you know? And a lot of them looked really just like normal people. Just, you know, there was a lot of older, like I would say maybe in their forties at the time, it was an old lady to me. And they just seemed normal. Like they had jobs, they worked as secretaries, they seemed normal. And I was, when we got the internet, um, I would go on like AOL and GeoCities chat rooms and try to like talk to people. At first I was talking to people about being gay and, yeah. and I was like, but you know, I, I feel like a girl trapped in a boy's body. And I'd heard that. And that really made a lot of sense to me. It kind of checked off a lot of boxes about insecurities that I had and, uh, teasing that I got as a kid. Uh, I was effeminate. I was very, his, like, like I hate to say hysterical, but I had a lot of emotional issues. Hmm. Um, I cried a lot. My mom died when I was five was in this really terrible car accident. Wow. And uh, just, like, spent so much of my childhood confused and upset and trying to find answers, you know, and and people told me a lot of different things that, that like appeased my brain for a while. But as I got older, that sort of like insubordinate desire to know more and that zest for like the truth became more and more confusing. And hmm. when I saw like people on TV talking about how, oh, you know, I felt this way and then I transitioned and now my life is this way. And people in the chat rooms were saying very similar things like um, I transitioned and now my life is so much better. And then there were people who were older in their like sixties and had maybe just retired. And they were saying, I knew when I was five years old that I was a woman and I spent my whole life running from it. And if, and if I knew if I could go back, I would transition as soon as I could. And the early like internet websites about transitioning were 
one of the things on TS Roadmap, which was like one of the first how to transition websites, um, said, if you think you're trans, you, you are trans and you should start transitioning yesterday. And there was that urgency, you know, and I'm like, wow, I'm going to be 19 soon. I've got these older people on the phone and in my ear saying, if you're thinking this, you are this, you know, you absolutely should transition. You can live a normal life. And all I wanted was like, I wanted a normal life. I wanted what I thought everyone else at my Christian school had, but, but I didn't have, you know, the two parents, the picket fence, the normalcy, you know, my childhood was very tumultuous with a single dad who worked all the time and grandparents. And then we moved away from our grandparents and, and it was just like me and my brother in a, in a house by ourselves all the time as latchkey kids. And, um, you know, I'm grateful that a lot of the people from my uh, Christian school and even when I went to elementary school, um, they really like all these moms adopted me and my brother and they really like tried to take us to their church. They took us to the amusement park. They took us and really included us like in their camp meetings and in just like all this stuff that they did. And I was really grateful for that. And it felt like I had this, I saw what other people had, you know, and I really like feel like that's where this whole coveting of hmm. normalcy for me came in. And I felt like, well, everyone's calling me a sissy. My dad is like calling me a sis effect sissy. Like, you know, when I was eight years old, this older boy basically like tricked me into molesting me. And I was very naive. I still think I'm a pretty naive person, but I was very naive in that moment and I trusted him and he called me pretty and it, it, it just, you know, made me very vulnerable and it made me feel a certain way that felt, um, I didn't feel shame about that moment until I told someone and they, I told my grandma and she told me to just like, don't talk about that. Don't ever do that again. Like just keep that inside. And I don't, I'm not mad at her or like, I don't hold her or anyone really responsible. Um, I don't even hold the older boy because I feel like he was probably just enacting out something that maybe happened to him. Like I know that if I'm forgiven for things that I've done, I have to forgive him too. Okay. And I was eight and he was probably 12 to 14 ish. Yeah. Um, so there's no telling what happened in his life. And so, so being a woman, so I, I bring this up when talking about males transitioning, there's the type of type, Biography or typology that Blanchard lays out, Ray Blanchard, uh, the sexologist, and he categorizes male to female uh, transitioners as the homosexual, transsexual, and the autogynephilic, the the man whose sexuality is fueling the transition, uh, and as opposed to uh, somebody who's homosexual and society does not know how to categorize or treat the homosexual male, especially the highly effeminate sexual male. And so transitioning is a way to relieve that dissonance that society is placing on the effeminate male. So I bring that up just to query into to what extent was the idea of woman a relief or an attractor? Um, was it something to run, to use, to run away from a problem or something that you were compelled to run toward, to fulfill like some sort of uh, destiny for me, or I think need it was... or sexual compulsion? Sorry, you broke I up. think it was escapism. I am familiar with Blanchard. Oh, are we, we breaking up? Hold on one second. We're back. Um, we're back. Okay. Um, um, I do think 
with Blanchard data. Okay, hold on a sec. Is that better? Yeah, so uh, let's... Uh, Sorry about that. No, that's Sorry. Okay. You're... you're um, it's just a signal. So We're back. I prayed over specifically this purpose. <laughs> so what, what's your take on Blanchard? I, I feel more connected to the homosexual transsexual because for me, it was escapism. I didn't feel safe around men. I felt comfortable around women. Um, when I was around my dad, he worked in NASCAR in a machine shop. It was very car culture, hyper-masculine. It was intimidating. It was scary. Um, he frequently called me a sissified sissy in front of men because I'd have like my little like sissy fits of like, I didn't want to stay at his work all day after school. Like I was tired. I was hungry. I wanted to go home and he worked all the time. So when, you know, I was just like a frustrated, emotional kid and I think it really was escapism um, because the idea of like the idea of being a woman felt more like a sense of comfort, more like a a maternal hug Mm -hmm. than like some sexual act because I, when I felt like I wanted to be a woman, I was a child and I don't really think my like sexual desires had developed until I was like 14 and really started struggling that summer with, um, being attracted to some boys and specifically one boy that I was like madly in love with. Hmm. Um, and you know, that, that came a little bit later and was very tumultuous and confusing for both of us. It was a Christian school, you know, um, and it was just like strictly forbidden, but there was that, that desire, you know? Um, and later when I went to therapy, um, one of the things that I talked about in therapy and that was talked about a bunch was this desire to live a normal life. You know, for me, I feel like that has been this sort of impossible attainment to just be like normal, to not have to deal with this, to not have to worry about like how society sees me or am I a sissy or a fag? Like, am I just me? You know? And I knew other like i had an english teacher in high school who was kind of an effeminate man but he was married and incredibly well respected but he was sassy and i was i always wondered i was like is he like you know what's what's going on um and i i I don't know i don't know i don't really care i just know that i did see my peers making fun of him for that even though he was married for like 40 years they're you know they they made fun of him and it's like well this is north carolina like how I don't want to be some cowboy. I'm not a Marlboro man. Like, you know, look at me. I'm, I want to wear a puka shell necklace and hang out at the beach. I don't want like yeah. this, this masculine thing because it's like, it's not working. Okay. And what about the aspect of, um, trying to get back to your mother through embodying the female? Did you well, have, I- did your dad remarry or did you guys get... He had a bunch of girlfriends. We had a live-in girlfriend named Peggy who after two years left, uh, hmm. wasn't expecting her to leave. I was very much in love with her. I asked her if I could call her mom. You know, she was very good to me and my brother. She included us in a lot of things. And then after that, 
all my dad's girlfriends came and went and they never really included us and okay. stuff. It was always like, Oh yeah, the kids are here. Um, and, and, you know, I knew that and I resented Peggy leaving. I resented my mom dying. I resented my dad taking us away from my grandparents where I felt like that safety. So I was just pissed off all the time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was a little nightmare. Um, but I had other stuff going on that I couldn't talk about. You know, the one thing that I wanted to talk about, I was told never to talk about. And the, later when I started like falling in love with this boy, um, all I heard from my Christian school was, well, you, if you have homosexual sex, if you're a fag, you're going to hell, you're going to die. You'll never, I'll never get to see my mom in heaven. And the whole way that I processed her death was that she was in heaven on a cloud with the angels and everything was peaceful. But the the first assembly Christian school that I went to basically said, if I didn't live a godly life, if I committed these homosexual sins, I wouldn't get to go to heaven and be with her. Okay. And for me, that was still, I think of that and it's like, wow, I was so afraid of that. Um, I was so afraid of that, that I didn't, I would, I would like do anything to not be gay, you know, but I, I was still like in my head, I saw myself like doing traditionally like woman things because my grandma's always included me in cooking, cleaning, sewing these like female, you know, gender stereotypes. Whereas my brother and all my, my male cousin, Paul, like he, they were out mowing lawns and doing boy things, waxing cars and stuff. And I was like in the house with my grandma's, you know, doing, making biscuits. And that's how I just saw my life. You know, and when I talked to a therapist when I was like 19, um, I saw two therapists, one a psychiatrist who I only talked to for like 15 minutes. And then another one, uh, an LCSW who I I talked to for like over a year. Um, They were both very supportive of, you know, the fact that like, yeah, I was, you know, more feminine than male. Um, At the time, I looked more male because I was a, a teenage boy. Um, but I was struggling with anorexia. Like I was starving myself to the point where I would faint. Okay. Uh, I fainted a few times in public just from like lack of nurture, like nourishment in my body. Yeah. Well, what was, was the really anorexia about control? I just, punishment? I, control, punishment. Yeah. I, I had very little control over my life. Um, and my, the first assembly Christian school was an extremely high control group. Um, my family, it was, I had like no say in anything, nothing over what I did for the day, what I ate, what I could do. It was just like, everything was just planned. So by, by, and plus, you know, I did have a chubby phase when I was younger because I, you know, I really loved eating McDonald's and and Burger King and stuff like what kid doesn't, but I packed on some weight and my dad, you know, used to say when I would say like, Oh, I'm hungry. He would say like, well, you have enough body fat on you to last you a week. You know, and it's just things like that. He was very, like, picky uh, towards me. And and I don't really, I never really saw him pick towards my brother the same way. And uh, and I, I internalized that. I took that as a, a lot of, like, it hurt me tremendously. Yeah. And I had one of my best friends in school. She cut herself. And I tried that a couple times, but I didn't like the blood. Like, I didn't like the gore. That, that bothered me. Um and so for me, the way of controlling and the way of feeling like I had power was to just not eat. And I look at pictures of myself from high school and my early 20s, and I'm like, 
rail thin. I just like, I just don't understand how I saw myself as such a monster, you know? Like in my TikTok lives, I talk because I have a lot of people that come in and they're like, what did you look like before? And so like, this is my high school picture. (laughs) Um, And so I look at this picture and I think like for 18 years, I looked at this face and thought I was this horrible, disgusting creature that didn't deserve love, didn't deserve anything. And I felt, I really felt that I believed it. And when I was 19, um, I went to a psychiatrist and cause I was like, I'm depressed. I want to die all the time. So I found a, a psychiatrist in the phone book. I went in and I, for like three hours, I filled out like a Scantron, you know, like the SAT. And it was just asking all these questions. I gave it to the guy. They ran it through the machine. I talked to the psychiatrist for like 15 minutes. He said, you have body dysmorphia, gender dysphoria, bipolar disorder, um, you know, and you're depressed. So here, take Effexor and Depakote. And I did. I started taking both of them. I what took Effexor in the morning and Depakote at night. Effexor is an antidepressant, and Depakote is, I think it's an anti-seizure medicine, but it's used off-label as, like, an antipsychotic. Because I really, at the time, I was having, like, extreme manic, extreme depressive. Like, I, I would just, you know, I was also doing drugs, so I was partying. Um, so, you know, 18 years old and getting into gay clubs in New York City. Um, okay where I, I moved right after I graduated high school and I got really swept up in like the twink, you know, club scene. Yes. Um, we took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade Two. Play it now with Game Pass. But on, on that, for a moment, though, it's a tumultuous um, activity. What did you, looking back at it now? Um, I remember being that age and the temptation to just give myself over to stimulus. Uh, to the hydraulics of desire, um, particularly gay culture is unbridled from the mating dances and the complexities of uh, a heterosexual, where you have to kind of woo the woman, and there's a bunch of emotional entanglements. And and uh, not to say that gay people are unemotional, but if you put yourself in that kind of meat grinder. Um, you can obliterate your sense of self. You can lose track of your fears, your anxieties. I'm sure there's, there's a lot of relief in there and then something to focus on that um, you can completely immerse yourself in. So um, if, if you want to speak to that, like what did you gain and what did you lose and how did you end up just going from a Christian to just completely letting go of, of that m- morality that you had been, um, that had been put upon you? for that. Well, it felt so freeing. Um, you know, I, I went to the New York school of interior design on the upper East side and there was a boy in there were, there were, it was mostly like older 
Central Park West, like housewives who their kids were out of school and now they were going to get a degree in interior design. And there were a couple of like young people. So I, I really attached to this kid, Sean. He was like a year older than me. He was from New Jersey. He was very worldly. He knew stuff I didn't know. And he introduced me to a guy who actually lived down the road, down the street from me. Um, his name was Billy. He was older. He had a penchant for younger boys. Um, yeah. he had a thing for Asian boys, so I never really had to do anything sexual with him, but there were, he lived in this like apartment that was very dark. He had a lot of money. He worked on the computer. Like, um, there was always teenage boys smoking cigarettes and doing ketamine and laying around in you know, slinky clothes. And there were hmm. times where he would pack two taxi cabs full of teenage boys, take us to limelight, take us to tunnel um and they would just let us in they there'd be people waiting you know and being from a small town that felt like oh my god i've made it you know it was like wow wow. um it was exhilarating and you go inside like limelight it's in this old cathedral there's gays everywhere and it's beautiful everyone is just sexy and you know it felt powerful and and the number one song that summer was sandstorm by dj darude so that song was playing like every single time we went there and I saw some trans people, but I mostly saw like gay daddies and there were like, you know, the twinks that, you know, were just like in the corner smoking and that culture, like it was, it was subcultures and I was so Interesting. like confused and excited by all of them. Like I wanted to be with the daddies. I wanted to be with the twinks. I wanted to be with the trannies. Like I just wanted to know like all these different things and, my life was pretty sheltered before that. And, uh, you know, I saw some things that I wish I hadn't seen. Um, I met people I wish I hadn't met, but luckily I got out. 9-11 happened my first year that I was there. And I took that as like a harbinger of the end times. So I ended up moving to Savannah. Um, so I lived in New York for about a year and a half. And in that time, uh, when I was like 18, I moved there in, uh, like June of 2000 and by August of 2000, an older man had paid me to have sex with him. And it was very exciting. Cause I didn't, when I got into that situation, like I met him in some chat room and he was like, Oh, I'm visiting from Des Moines or some small town. And, and um, I would love to take you out for dinner. And he took me to the Olive Garden in Times Square. Cause he was staying at like a Marriott in Times Square or whatever and took me out to the olive garden and then we went back to his hotel and we fucked and he gave me a couple hundred bucks and at first i was like oh no no that's okay you don't you don't have to you know um but then he insisted and he's like go buy something nice and i felt like snatch that money and i like i got hooked on that and so very quickly i learned that older men would pay to have sex with me um and they they seemed to really enjoy it and Mm. I was already a very disassociated, like it was very easy for me from my childhood to just go into like fantasy land. And that's where I would go, you know? And then I would have, I would meet boys that I liked and they would be catty and mean towards me. And um, they weren't, they didn't treat me with the same like intimacy and adoration that these older men did. And so I, I feel like I gravitated more to them and then it just got to the point where 9-11 happened and I was like, okay, I can't be in New York City. This is like, literally, this is like, you know, the world is falling apart. I'm a homosexual. This isn't God's plan for me. So I moved to Savannah. 
And I moved to Savannah and I went to Savannah College of Art and Design for like a semester and a half. And that's where I saw the therapist for the first time. And I, I went in there, I was like, I want to talk about this stuff. I want to talk about like how I feel, my childhood molestation. Like I want to talk about the shame that I feel. I want to I want to like figure out if it's okay to be gay. And I started going to Club One, which at the time was the like big gay bar in Savannah. And I met some queens and I fell in love with a, a bartender there and um, dated him for a little while. But then I started like transitioning and started being more feminine and that wasn't his thing. So we became friends. And yeah. The therapists that I saw, like they seemed well-meaning and like, I don't think they ever said, you're not a girl. Like you're not, you know, it was, it was never like, once I started talking about how I feel like a girl trapped in a boy's body, it was like, that became the big focus of our discussions. Mm -hmm. And the Harry Benjamin standards of care were such that like, uh, you had to go full time for a year in order to get hormone therapy. And then you had to do like, excuse me, a year of that in order to get bottom surgery. But there was no like standards of care for boob jobs or, nose jobs facial feminization was kind of a newer thing it was kind of still underground um so three months three between like three and six months of um presenting as a girl my therapist wrote me a letter saying yes you know i'm gonna write you this letter but i couldn't find a pharmacist or a doctor in savannah to fulfill it so i went to atlanta i found a clinic that did through one of the queens at the club told me go see this doctor you know she'll write you the prescription and then i couldn't find anybody to fill it and then the queens were like, oh, you got to go to this part of town. They'll write you a prescription. You know, they'll fill it. No questions. So I did that. And within like a couple months, I was taking Premarin and Spironolactone. And it was a pretty high dose of Premarin, too, because my body really did start to have a lot of profound, fast changes. Hmm. Uh, I was only 19 at the time. And it was just the whole thing was like very, very quick. But because of my mom uh, dying, I got uh, an insurance settlement from the car wreck that we were in. And I, I was like, this is it, you know, this is, um, this is all supposed to happen. Like this is supposed to be, it's like part of the plan. I wouldn't have gotten this money if it wasn't, you know, for my better good. You know, I think my family thought it was going to be for like college or buying a house or starting a business, but in my okay. 19 year old head, it was gonna make me a woman. So and so at, oh, continue well, at 20, at 20, I flew to San Francisco and had full facial feminization surgery for $32,000 with Dr. Douglas Osterhout, you know, and again, that whole thing was he just took some calipers and, and an x-ray and measured my skull. There wasn't really like a, tell me about you, you know, it was a sales pitch. And, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't really sure in my head, I thought I would just get this like surgery and I'd wake up a woman, you know. And then when I had that facial literal woman face, huh. literally, you know, and it was, it was all very like, as a kid, I think some of my favorite stories were like Grimm's fairy tales and these sort of, you know, magical experiences like where, where like hero's journey is transformed into chrysalis into pupa, you know, like whatever. Yeah. Um, and when I actually did it, when I saw my face in the mirror, like four days after I was discharged from the, the hospital, uh, I saw myself, my face in the mirror and I was like, oh my God, what have I done? You know, I had this huge scar on my forehead. I was black and blue. My, my one eye, 
the blood vessel and it burst and my whole eye was red. Um, it never went back to normal. My one eye is always bloodshot. Oh. Uh, ever since then, just always been really bloodshot. I had like numbness in my jaw. I couldn't talk. Like my throat was all messed up. I had forehead, nose, jaw, chin, Adam's apple. It was a 12 hour surgery, you know, which now I'm like, oh my God, it was so long that they actually had two meals. The, the Dr. Osterhout took like a power nap. They had pizza for lunch and then they had a sushi dinner while I was still on the table being operated on. Jesus, Dr. Tranny yeah. Stein. It, he literally is like, he created, he invented the maxiofacial like feminization surgery. And I've heard from some other people that went to him that basically he gave us all the same face, you know, like, um, wow. and if you do look at some Dr. Osterhout patients, there is a lot of resemblance. I wonder if um, he's recreating his childhood girlfriend or mother. That's what I've, <laughs> that's what I've heard. I've heard people who theorize, you know, that there's one particular face, like, because the way that he does the forehead, I didn't want to get my nose done. I wanted my forehead because I had a pretty big brow. Okay. And he said, if I do the brow, I have to do the nose, you know, and so that it makes it like cohesive. And he wouldn't do one without the other. And I let him do it. You know, I figured, oh, well, it's just going to be great. But my nose came out all crooked. Like I had Bell's palsy from Lyme disease as a kid anyway. So my face always had a little bit of a asymmetry. Yeah. Um, you, and I think part of do you have a that photo? had something with it. Of after you healed from this, and we can see it with that photo of you as a teenager? It was profoundly different. You know, I mean, you could just like, you could see this is like the before um, and the after. There was the chin is different, the jaw, the nose, the forehead, like everything is different. But he, he told me, and I remember asking him because, you know, I was like young and vain, <laughs> will I be pretty? And he said, in my experience, pretty boys make pretty girls. And I've heard other other people who've gone to him that were younger and asked that same question. He has said that to them. So it's not like something I imagined. Pretty boys make pretty girls. And I was. I was like a pretty boy. I had the, the puka shell necklace. I was a twink. Um, you know, I... I the people that like as a boy I emulated were like Jonathan Brandis and Devin Sawa, that sort of like all American nineties boy next door. But I didn't feel right in that. You know, yeah. I felt like that was okay. that was like a mass. So if if you are getting uh let's just say you're getting attention and acceptance, even if it's shallow via sexual uh transactions as who you are, what did you imagine being or feminizing would give you access to? Um, if you're, if you already found a culture that accepts you as you are in a, albeit shallow way, sexual way, um, what added benefit would there be to moving from that to a female or to a woman? I think it was that normalization of like the picket fence, getting married, okay. having kids. I didn't know any gay people that did that. Gay marriage wasn't even that, you know, it was still 10 plus years, 13 years away, okay. uh, 10 years. I'm not sure when it was even legalized, but it was a decade away. So in okay. my desire was, I just wanted to like meet a man, fall in love, adopt some kids, have a job and be normal. What what did you think about the potential loss, even if you're aware of your fertility and sexual function? Well, when I late a couple years later, 
from that moment of transitioning, I think I was like maybe three years in, I moved to Philly and I went to a fertility clinic there to see, you know, it was very embarrassing because everyone was like, I don't understand you have sperm. Um, so you were passing, and you were passing. Yeah. From that, from that surgery, I passed really well. Um, hmm. I passed well enough where it got me into trouble. Uh, cause I didn't know in my brain, I still looked very much like my boy face, but people were seeing this sort of girl face. You know? How did you get and, in trouble? Like you thought you were like, going to walk into the wrong, uh, the wrong bathroom. No, somewhere. no, it was more like guys would flirt with me at bars and stuff. And at this point I wasn't just going to the gay bar. I was going to like straight bars on river street. Okay. And you crying, like crying gamed your way through Philadelphia. Is that what you're saying? Basically. Yeah. Well it, it's Savannah too. As soon as, as soon as the swelling started going down after like the three to six month mark of coming, recovering from facial feminization, I really, I really started passing. Oh, I'm sorry. I felt like, uh, they all could just tell, uh, they could but tell. they couldn't. Okay. I thought that they knew. I thought that they like knew that I was trans or that I was really a boy, okay. but they didn't. And so like, you know, they'd be like, Oh, let me get your number. And then I would like talk to them or like, I hooked up with a couple of them and like, you know, gave them oral sex. And then they found out later on that I was trans when I wouldn't like have sex with them. And they were just like, not pleased. So that was a learning experience. And some of the queens at the club were like, hey, you have to be really careful. Yes. You're not just, um, you're not. You're a hybrid. You, I don't think you understand. Yeah, yes. you're a okay. hybrid. Could, could we pause for just a moment? Could you define queens? Who, who are they? Oh, the drag queens. Okay, so drag queens. And in, in this particular society, anthropologically speaking, what role do they serve? And to what extent were they trans or drag? You know, so what kind of like, it seems like they're kind of like the matriarchs. They were definitely matriarchal for me. Um, there were out of like the five queens that I knew at Club One, uh, one of them lived 100% full time as a woman had breast implants, like passed. She was even on the Sally Jesse Raphael show at some point. Um, there were some others that were like semi full time who would like, if you saw them out in public, they were women, but they still like were gay men, you yeah. know? And um, I hung out with them and they were very maternal. Okay. What was the, I'm sorry, you don't have to answer this question, but to what degree was there a sexual relationship, generally speaking, between the queens and None. the rest of the the twinks, I guess? So it was more like a, oh. a motherly father uh, to, to feminine boy kind of relationship. Yeah, I feel like that's more accurate. I never had sex with any of them. I don't know of them having sex with any of the younger guys. Most of them had older boyfriends. Okay. Uh, so they fulfilled kind of the female role typically the femme role in a femme fem relationship. Role. Interesting. Okay. All right. Yeah. And did it, you and see yourself as becoming them in the long term? Like when you looked at your future, if you had, if you ever, I didn't want to. That? Okay. I didn't want to. Cause I didn't, I, I like didn't want to be in the bar. I didn't want to be like a person at nighttime. Like I just wanted to live in the daytime. And one of the things that Dr. Osterhout, another thing that he said was that, um, his goal for facial feminization was that if you woke up at like seven in the morning and the UPS man was at the door, you could answer the door without any makeup on, without any pomp and circumstance. You could just open the door and he would say, oh, good morning, ma'am. He would just automatically clock you as a female. Okay. And that 
I really, I like, I wanted that, you know, I didn't want to, cause I, I mean, all of the Queens that I knew were also doing sex work and they were also smoking meth and they were also, there was a lot of other things at play okay. in that culture. So, so you're dabbling in this culture, but you don't see it as a long term. You don't want to get hooked no. on these things. This is just a, you just being young, you doing your prodigal son thing, just like living it up kind of thing. It was a temporary, it was, it had always been a temporary or at least you had in your head that this is just kind of something that you're doing, not... Yeah, because when I moved to Philly, I didn't seek out that culture anymore. Okay. You know, I had already transitioned, so I was a couple years under my belt of, like, living as a female. Huh. Um, I went to the Philly AIDS thrift, and I applied for a job and got hired. Um, I got a job at a video store, and, and I lived in a house with, like, five other girls, and... and like, like girl, girl, girls time. or boy, Females, girl, girls. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Females. Um, and for the long, and that, that house was crazy. It was like, it was like uh, very sorority esque yeah. in the sense that there was a lot of drama, but also a like camaraderie, you know, we How had, did you fit into female society. Were you the exception well, I, that proved the rule kind of like the, the gay boy kind of thing? Like did they, were you in competition with them? Were you aside their female uh, power? There dynamics? was a competition for sure because I was. There was a, a guy that I had met that came to the thrift store, and I was. I had a crush on him, but I also had a crush on one of my roommates who was a girl. I was like, oh, she's so cool! Like, I want to be like her. I also had a crush on her because, huh. like, in high school, I, I also had crushes on girls. Like, I was just. You know, for me, it was like the person, but this guy, I was really in love with him. And then I came home one day and I found him in bed with my other roommate and they both said that nothing happened. They were just naked in the air conditioning. No big deal. And I went ballistic. I mean, I went nuts. Um, and, uh, and in that situation, in that house, one of the crazy things, and, and it was this like moment of, wow, okay, these people really don't understand who I am was when one of them accused me of stealing her tampons and like never, she's like, I looked in your, in your basket. You never have tampons. You never like, you know, who's you're stealing my tampons. And I was like, girl, there's impossible. There's no possible way. And she was like, I, I told her I didn't bleed. She didn't believe me. This we're talking 2005, okay. 2005. Was there, uh, the bottom surgery euphemism alert? At that Not yet. Point. So in the arc, okay. you were intact. Fully intact. I was fully intact. Okay. And she um, still so thought that you that were a woman or a pseudo woman. Oh, you didn't tell your roommates that you were. No, they didn't know. Nobody knew. I was, I was like deep stealth. I moved to Philly to get away from that and to live this sort of stealth life. And okay. the only person that I told, um, was Sterling, obviously the person I was having sex with. And, um, my boss at the thrift store, Christina, who's like still one of my greatest, closest friends. She's another, like, she became my mama bear after I got to Philly because she also, she was a sex worker who got out of it and was female Christian or female to male. She's female. Um, just a straight female lady. Um, but she was doing like sex work and got out of it and got born again and lost all her friends. And so when we would work together at the thrift store, she would like start talking to me about God. And I was so mad because of my own upbringing with God. And I was like, don't you dare talk to me about God. Like, I don't, you know, we can be friends, but we can't talk about that. And, but I, I saw her as mom, you know, and I know that she is very maternal and never had kids and she does adopt. She has adopted many, yeah. um, you know, many youth over the years and been 
a guide and a godsend, really. Yeah. Uh, What's the? But I basically back at that house, I had to pull my pants down and show my roommate my penis. Oh. In order to get her to believe, I was like, "Now I'm going to do something and don't freak out." <laughs> <laughs> and she was like, "That's so crazy! I had no idea that was even possible." And she's like, "Can I touch your boobs?" And I was like, "Yeah, they're breast implants." And you know, she squeezed my boob, and like, it was. You know, and then you were it was, lying naked in the air conditioning together, but nothing was happening. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> nothing between us ever happened. Interesting. Uh, I think wow. we kissed once, and it was like a spin the bottle type type thing. But what, what's the um, what was the psychological debt that you took on by being stealth? Was there cognitive dissonance? Were you lying? Did you feel that pressure of lying? One hundred percent lying. I lied about everything. People would ask, like, just simple things. You know, like. Uh, what did you look like in high school? What, you know, what kind, what style were you? Cause you know, I was like the scene emo thing was coming out. So I was like, yeah, I was kind of into that style, but I also like really liked, you know, metal and punk and hmm. Courtney. I was obsessed with Courtney love, you know, like what nineties twink wasn't. Um, <laughs> and it was, yeah, it, it felt like I was lying. Like I made sure, like, you can't tell anybody when I told, you know, Sterling, I was like, don't tell anybody. And he didn't want people to know either because he didn't want that to like affect his masculinity. He didn't want people to think he was, was gay. Was he straight? I think he had, I think he had his own issues. Um, hmm. Later on, I mean, he passed away, so I feel okay talking about it. But later on, I saw he, he also had a very, um, he had a continuous sexual abuse by a stepfather um and that i saw pictures of him in high school and he wore makeup and he was into the like you know the spike hair and the ball chains and you know mm. i think there was something there with him and that yeah. he never really processed and when he and i broke up he started dating this girl meredith and she got him back into heroin and he was always doing heroin when we were together but it was never like an issue it was just like oh you know He's a musician. He's so poetic. I thought it was romantic. But then he started, when he started dating Meredith, it got really dark. And, you know, he's, then I found out he was like pawning his guitars and, yeah. and he was borrowing money from me and I was giving him money. And, you know, like I let him crash at my house a bunch of times when they were fighting and, hmm. and I loved him. I loved him more than a lover. Uh, I really thought we would be old oldsters together. You know, whether that was a relationship or just like buddies, you know, I, I loved him like a brother. Yeah. Uh, and when he died, he died in 20, I want to say 2012, or maybe early 2013. It was, it was heartbreaking. It just kind of put me on this whole like dismantling. Um, like I just felt so, uh, well, he was my first friend that committed suicide. And since then I've, I've had seven trans women friends commit suicide. And I know a female who committed suicide, a friend of mine. And then I have two friends who were murdered by their partners. Um, three, if you count person that I only met a couple times, but knew peripherally in the, in the like scene in Philadelphia. Okay. Um, and is this so mostly I, like, like um, rainbow community um, friends? In the trans women. Yes. Um, one of the girls that was murdered was murdered by her lesbian partner. Uh, it was awful. She like drove over her and left her for dead in an alley in Atlanta. It was like, we met at SCAD and we were really good friends. And then I moved to Philly and she moved to Atlanta. She met this girl who owned a restaurant and was really popular. 
they were out partying one night, you know, and that was really sad because I really, I really, I was just like one of my really good friends. And back in those days, we still wrote like letters to each other. You know, we still were pen pals. Uh, and I found out my friend, Eric, who was the bartender at the club uh, in Savannah, he called me and was like, Hey, I have some really bad news. And that was like the first person, my first friend that I lost. And then Sterling, and that was Sterling was like so traumatic because he was missing for a week and nobody knew what was going on. And, and then after that, like I, I knew a trans woman who killed herself. I knew another one who it was just like every year, another one, another one left the planet. Okay. And they, these were, these were people that I like admired, you know, and I respected. And I was like, wow, they're, they transitioned. They're cool. Like they seem like they, they have their life together. And, Obviously, you know, you never, you never know what's going on in someone's heart, but, uh, can we back up a bit? Sure. Yeah. And and sorry for, I jump all over. Yeah. Um, sorry for the massive amount of loss that you've, um, weathered. If, can we go back to teenage years? Um, I have a question, but I want to build up to the question. So, Teenage years, even like preteen years, like your relationship to creativity and spirituality, like what, what's your creative life, your spiritual life? Well, we, we kind of discussed your trauma, the negative aspects of your life. But what about like, you know, like discovering yourself as a generator of, you know, culture as a hu- full human being? Were you? I loved art. Period? You Okay. So you loved, like, loved or creating it? Creating. Yeah. yeah okay. I... I, um, when, after my mom died, I had a social worker and she encouraged me to draw and to write down my, what was going on, um, which basically led me into a lifetime of journaling. Okay. And my English teacher, the one I was talking about, who was kind of like a feminine, he was also my creative writing teacher. And out of all my high school teachers, um, all like a lot of the women really had mama like mama energy towards me, but he had this sort of like, I, I want you to see the world. I want you to know that there's more outside of first assembly Christian school outside of, you know, Catawba County outside of North Carolina. Um, and there were things that were on like the schools, like the North Carolina state, like literature that you're supposed to read in order to graduate that our school was like, no, 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 you're not going to read that. But he told me and my best friend Lola, like, you should, you should read this book. You should, you know, seek out Catcher in the Rye, seek out Great Gatsby, which one year we ended up, we were allowed to read. Um, And just other things like that, you know, poetry. Um, He gave me a copy of uh, Leaves of Grass, which was, I still have it. It's beautiful. It's very special. Um, And I had an art teacher who was a Christian lady and she really had no business being an art teacher, but um, she picked on me all the time. She said my art didn't glorify God, you know, that it was dark sided that it was just like not hmm. good. But then she had like a, an abs, like a, a leave of absence for half the year. And we had this young, uh, freshly college graduate lady named uh, Mrs. Miss McLean. And she was so cool. She was beautiful. She drove a firebird. She was like, whatever kind of art you want to do, do it. It was very like open concept. And I excelled in that. And then Mrs. Williams, the teacher, she came back and it was just like, Oh, fuck this lady. I hate her. She's awful. You know, I had this like real creative experience. And then now this other teacher's back and it's like, well, you know, back, back to the, to the bricks. Yeah. Um, 
And so I've always journaled. I've, I, I love creative writing. My senior year of high school, we did a, like a class book called Tapestry. And I think I had like 10 submissions to that. I loved doing photography. I worked at a photo lab in high school, a one hour photo lab. So I was always like taking pictures and developing my own film. Okay. And uh, yeah, the creative world always was a sort of outlet for me. And having like lived half of my like free time in, you know, like up in the clouds of like fairy tale land, um, art was very therapeutic. Okay. And then, um, and it still is. I still journal. And spirituality, like, I mean, I went to a Christian school, so God was, like, my number one focus. Okay. And we had chapel on Thursdays. Um, there was, like, youth group on Wednesdays. There was church on Sundays. But I didn't get to go to youth group and church as often as I wanted to because my dad worked and we lived kind of far from school. But um, the church ladies would take me and my brother to their churches. So I got to go to, like, boring Baptist churches. I got to go to like apostolic holiness churches where people are like shouting and screaming. Um, I got to go to the Brownsville revival in Florida, which was this like massive evangelical revival where, you know, I think 5 million people came in a year and got saved. And it was just like this huge thing. My whole like school, we went on a chartered bus trip down there. We slept on the floor of another church. We went in there. I, I was afraid because the pastor was really like fire and brimstone pastor, Steve Hill. Um, I've watched some of his preaching on, on YouTube and I'm like, wow, you know, no wonder I was scared. He really, he had the shouting like that Pentecostal, like fire. Um, but in that, in that whole like time, especially when we were at Brownsville, um, this girl, pulled me into the sanctuary and was like, come on, let's go down to the altar. Let's go down to the altar. And I was scared. And we ended up like getting separated because there's, you know, thousands of people. And she went down and I turned around and this like four foot tall black lady just touched my sternum with like her hand. And I just like fell backwards, you know, instant slain in the spirit, like on the ground, laughing, crying, like totally ecstatic, you know, and that lasted for a long time. And from that moment, I, I felt like when I was younger in church and stuff, we did speak in tongues and it, and we did like get anointed and you could see and you could feel the Holy spirit in this church. And it was kind of like addicting. Like I wanted that. And when I experienced it at Brownsville, I was like, okay, I'm not going to be gay. I'm not going to be gay. Like I can't be, I want that. I want that anointing. I don't want that anointing to leave. And I think that's probably part of that is like just another like building block into why I thought I could transition and be normal and fix God's mistake. Yeah. You know, I really believe that. I really believe like, okay, maybe God did make a mistake because they're saying like, well, excuse me, um, you, it could be like a hormone imbalance in utero. It could be, uh, you know, oh, the wires got crossed and they put a, you know, they put the wrong spirit in the wrong body. And as a kid, you know, prone to magical thinking, that was very enticing. Yeah. You know, and it was sort of a way for me to feel like I could still s- sin, I could still be with a man, but yet it wouldn't be as bad sin. because it wouldn't be a mortal sin. I could still go to heaven and see my mom. I could just like, oh, God made a mistake. I'm supposed to be a girl. Okay. And I saw people on TV and people in the world who were born one gender living as the other. And it just seemed... Hey, every single person I talked to, they said their life was better. 
I never knew about detransition. I never knew about regret until way down the line. Yeah. Uh, way down the line. So and when you're, so aside the reasoning behind transition, when you begin to transition, to what degree does transitioning does your body, does your looks, your voice, your self-production become the site of your creativity and your spirituality? Does, do, does it wow. become like where you, you are able to be creative, self-expressive, where you do commune somehow with the spirit? Does it kind of take precedence or become like the locus of your self? Well, I feel like at that point I had lost that anointing um, oh, okay. that I had no longer, I was no longer under like the grace of God that I had been fallen from it. Yeah. And so I made myself into that. Um, I made myself into like my creativity. I was like, yeah, I'm going to dye my hair crazy. I'm going to get piercings. I'm going to cover myself in tattoos. Like I'm going to get, you know, I'm just, if I'm not going to get to have this normal thing, I'm just going to be okay. as crazy as I want to be, yeah. you okay. know? Yeah. And so you're, you're no longer a creature of God, um, but you're your own creature. Kind of like, like you, you kind of bereft of God, you become like yeah, the idol. Yeah. You know, I feel like I became my own golden calf. Hmm. And even at the time that seemed very enticing. And it was, it was 2006 that I went to camp trans in Michigan, which was like a, started as a protest of the Michigan women's music festival. Um, Are you serious? And, Wait, hold on. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so this um, is where I got woke. This is where I went woke. Was oh, okay. Let's let's uh, let's switch gears into wokedom. Um, so there's a women's festival. Um, I'm just going to throw out some names, and you can either nod or or, or shake your head. Um, uh, Sarah McLaughlin's there. Tori Amos is there. Um, you None know, of those. These, no, it it wasn't as big girl. as like Lilith Fair. Oh, Lilith it was Fair. That's what I'm thinking. Girl, okay. Like, Bitch and Animal were there. Um, it was it was mostly like a lesbian folk. Scene. Yeah. Okay. So lesbian butch, they go out in the forest. They take. I don't know. Do lesbians do a top coppers? What do they do? Whatever they do, they go out there. I never went. I never got to okay. go inside, so I have no idea what happened. In oh, it's four women by women, and the trans women, women are like all. WTF? Like, how dare you rob us of this chance to celebrate womanhood? Is that kind yes, of like the vibe? Yes. I met a trans girl on the internet and she was the one that told me about camp trans and she had gone in like 2004 or five and was like, you know, you should go. It was really powerful for me. Oh, okay. And I was like, okay, so I'll go to, I'll go to like, I'll take the bus to Michigan, you know, some random place. It's like uh, the million trans March kind of thing. It's like this big event where all the transfluencers like congregate. Well, you would think so, but there was probably like maybe 40 of us that oh, first year. Okay. Um, but basically, from my understanding was in the late 90s, there was a trans woman who went to Mishfest and she was on the land preoperative. And there was a situation where some people saw her in the shower and said, there's no penises allowed on the land. So they kicked her out. They said, you got to go. And some of the other like lesbians, the festies brought her food and a tent and like because, you know, she was like the middle of nowhere in northern michigan like outside of muskegon and from that moment she like you know got some cardboard signs and started you know writing you know trans and you know trans rights or human rights or whatever she she had her little protest across the street well the next year more people joined her the next year more people joined them and it got bigger and bigger 
And when I got there in 2006, um, there was a lot of people who went to Smith College and like Amherst and Bryn Mawr, a lot of like females who were in academia. And that's where I first learned about cis. That's where I first learned about privilege. Wait, Um, the female academics show up with their queer theory and proselytize to the trans community? Is that yeah, because a lot of them suggesting? were trans men. They were, there was, I would say it was like maybe a half and half of like female lesbian allies to female trans, or female to male trans men. Um, who were like, I, I never read anything about Marxism. Like, I just knew communism was bad. I grew up, you know, evangelical. So like anything that's not capitalism is demonic. Um, and so these, and they were like, one of the things I noticed immediately that was kind of weird was that um, because there were some vegans at Camp Trans, all of the food that got cooked in the communal kitchen had to be vegan because it was the common denominator. Because okay. people that didn't eat meat could yeah. vegan, but people that ate vegan couldn't eat meat. So it was like, okay, so this is like sort of like early collectivism. Yeah. And it was... It was interesting. There was like like a big fire. It was a sausage fest, and yet it wasn't a sausage fest. I wouldn't say sausage fest, because it was mostly females. Um, There were some trans women. Uh, I met a couple that um, one of them would be one of the first trans women I knew to commit suicide later on. Um, There were people, there were punks there. I'd never met trans punks before. And I was really excited by it. And that first it was like a week long thing and they had this thing called walking the line. And what you did was when all of the lesbians are coming in in their RVs and their Subarus up this dirt road to get into fest where it would like back up and there'd be a long line of traffic. The trans activists would walk down there and hand out literature about why trans women should be allowed in the space. And the very first car that I spoke to were old lesbians and they were not having it. They were seasoned with that topic and they were just like this is our space you have your space do your thing we'll do our thing respect us and it made sense to me and so i remember saying to the trans woman that i was with i was like yeah i don't kind of think they got a good argument like i just actually want to go back to camp and hang out and like chop firewood and like have conversations and meet people that are my people and then i remember she goes well you're not nearly as radical as you think you are and I was like, okay. So I went back to camp. I smoked a bunch of cigarettes. I smoked some weed with some people. We we split a bunch of firewood. You know, it felt really more my scene. Yeah. But that first year, um, in those like seven days of camp, uh, a trans woman named Lorraine, she ended up going over to Mishfest and buying a ticket. She said, I'm a transgender. Sell me a ticket. They sold her a ticket. She got to go in for the day. It was like a day pass only. She went in, they took some pictures and she came back to camp trans and she reported on her experience. And there was this group in the Michigan women's festival called the yellow armbands. And they were trans inclusive lesbians. They wanted trans women to be able to come over to the space. And they wore like yellow armbands around their arms to differentiate, you know, that they were supportive of transgender people at Mishfest. Um, and then, uh, this person, bitch, who was in this band, bitch and animal, she came over to Camp Trans one day and hung out with a bunch of people and talked to people and brought like an entourage with her. It was all very exciting because no trans woman had been on the land except for the one that had gotten kicked out. I think her name was Ricky Wilchins. She got kicked out in the 90s and for, you know, like 
seven years, there was no trannies on the land. And now one actually bought a ticket and went. And at the end of the week, they decided they were going to put out a press release, the trans activists. They put out a press release saying that uh, the decades-long trans-exclusionary rule at Mishfest had been finally done away with and that trans women were now welcome, which was not the case at all. Um, They just... One person was allowed to go on the land. Nothing changed. You know, she wasn't allowed to camp there. She just like went and talked to a few people. They had like a workshop hmm. with her separate and people came to it. She was ushered on the land and off the land. But the trans rights activists who were all these like young radicals put out this press release on the internet. And then it was like a firebomb of explosion between like Lisa Vogel, the owner of the Michigan Women's Music Festival and the lesbians are saying, how dare you? You had no right to do that. Like there was a breakup in the yellow armbands and it was just like, it was a lot for my first year. And I was just like this young radical punk who just wanted to. What's your identity at this point? Full-time, uh, a trans full-time woman? female. Okay. Yeah. Trans woman. Like I, I just identified as I had transitioned, even though I hadn't had bottom surgery. Okay. Like I just was trans. Did and, you have uh, ch- uh, top sur- uh, implants? I did. I had a breast okay. implants by that time. And what's your, uh, your cocktail of uh, synthetic, um, uh, hormones. drugs, hormones, the whole, the whole thing. At the time so, I was taking, um, I had just stopped taking Premarin because my doctors were like, yeah, this is a high rate of cancer. And I started taking um, Estradiol, Valorip, a little blue pill. And this is all for the transition stuff. Okay. Um, I was still taking, at this point, I wasn't taking Effexor anymore. I was taking Wellbutrin. Um, I'd switched over the course of like five years from, I started with Effexor and Depakote. And then I discontinued Depakote because it made me feel like, like walking dead. And then I went from Effexor to Paxil, Paxil to um, Wellbutrin, and then Wellbutrin to Zoloft. And then Zoloft was the last one I took. And I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. I I think I was 26. And I said, I'm just going to see what my brain does because I transition. And so I feel like less depressed. I feel less sad all the time okay but i was dealing with the anxiety of well does this person know i'm trans does that person can't tell like i had this new anxiety yeah i wasn't as depressed but i was like more anxious and i was smoking a lot of weed at the time okay um and Who? so yeah at camp trans i was on i'm pretty sure back then i was i was on wellbutrin at that time uh-huh. what what's the process of dealing with uh, the category of mental health. Do you have a therapist at this time? Are you journaling? Like, how are you, how are you just processing? I've always journaled. Um, I talk a lot on TikTok, which is, you know, just free therapy, I guess. I go on TikTok live and I talk to people. Um, I talk to my pastors, um, at my church in Tucson. Um, I have a community of people I found other detransitioners that I talk to. But um, in 2006, sorry, he did. Oh, in 2006, I had nothing. Okay. I had no, um, no therapy. I talked to Christina, um, the lady that worked at the thrift store with me. I talked to her a lot, uh, but I was just kind of on my own. Okay. Uh, how do you feel you were self-regulating? How, how well were you, you think? I was crazy. I was all over the place. Really? I, I still had the ups and downs. Okay. Um, but 
I was also drinking and I was partying and having fun. And I was getting a lot of like positive affirmation from people who liked me. And I think I only ever really wanted people to like me and to be my friend. And I wanted to be a part of a scene and I made friends. Uh, I made a lot of friends at the coffee shop that was near my job. Um, this was before everyone was just sitting on their phones in a public place. Like people actually had to talk. And so people would say, Oh, I've seen you here before. What's your name? You know, like, Oh, I'm having a show at my house later. You should come. Okay. Like Philly had the punks picnic. And I used to go to that all the time. And I'd go down to the skate park and talk to people and meet people. Uh, it was very like analog. It wasn't really digital, but that filled that need of that filled a need for me. And what about your ambitions in life at that, at that point? Like, did you want to get a career? You go to college, take your, take the job no. seriously or anything like that. You just kind of, no, I had a really good job. I loved my job at the video store yeah. and I thought the video store would be around forever. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I was like, Oh yeah. My boss had worked at the video store for 20 years and was so cool. And I was like, Oh, he has his own apartment. Like I could do this too, you know? And then in 2010, the video store like world collapsed Oof. and that was over. And then I got a job in a restaurant and, um, uh, still was working on and off at that thrift store. I worked at a bookstore. I always had like low level jobs, but they were always really creative and fun. Okay. Um, I loved the thrift store. I loved working at the bookstore in South Philly. I loved the video store. Um, before I moved to Tucson, I worked in a vintage store that specialized in estate jewelry. So, um, you know, I was always around like creative stuff and I, I enjoyed that. Um, I bought a house in 2009, right after the market crashed in South Philly. And it was like a hoarder house. So a lot of my creative energy got funneled into fixing that place up. And I spent the last of my money from the car wreck on that house. And so I had to like fix things by scrapping wood out of dumpsters. Like I would take like 10 two by fours and screw them together to make a you know, a post to build a wall. Like yeah. if you take the sheetrock off of that house, you're in for a surprise. <laughs> um, for the people I sold it to, I feel bad for them, but that uh, was very creative at the time. And, okay. you know, yeah. so that was like my, that was my life. And I didn't really think too far of the future. I was already starting to lose friends to suicide that I was just like, Oh, any, every day is like just a gift. Every day is just a day. Okay. What, you know? what, what's your relationship to death at this point? Was suicidal ideation had, had that ever? Yeah, I was still suicidal. I mean, that has even still to this day, I feel like, Oh, it'd just be better if I wasn't here. Um, but I, at that point I didn't want to die. I just had these like, you know, dramatic, like, well, just kill yourself. <laughs> you know, like, Nobody cares. Nobody would even know. And that was really toxic because, again, it's that same voice of me talking to myself in the mirror saying terrible things, you know, okay. when I wasn't, like, I didn't have any, like, real goodness in my life. I didn't. I had my Grammy, who I would go visit pretty often, um, and she was, she was, like, accepting of my transition in the sense that, like, it kept me alive. You know, and she saw, she said, like, you look like you're happier smiling now. Okay. Um, but I didn't really feel that way. And yeah, I just, I, I don't know. I kind of just went like every day. Um, I started hanging out with the same people, drinking beers at the same bar, riding my bike around the city, uh, going on dates. Like, 
but everything was there was so much heartache still in that time even though i look back now it was like wow it's like pre smartphone it's you know pre my first detransition like everything that was like probably the best time of my my life my early 20s uh, it was so fun it was carefree i didn't really have a lot of responsibilities i think before i bought the house i was renting a room and it was like 186 dollars a month yeah. you know plus utilities so it was just like it's just so easy you know you could work like three days and no big deal um and you could just go do pursue your own stuff uh, but then things really started to change it got philly got really overrun by people moving from new york and everything got really expensive and then yeah. you know you had to have another job and, but so uh, leading to the first detransition what was the first uh inklings that being trans was not correct for you well, at the time in the queer community, there was a real like adoration of trans masculinity. There was very, it, everything was like the, at least in the queer political scene that I, that I knew of, that I was in peripherally, everything was like trans men and they were the coolest and trans women were just like, ah, eh, kind of tolerated, but kind of cringe, you know, like hmm. whatever. And so it seemed like that was a better way to exist. And I was feeling like my transition, like, yeah, it's okay. It's been a success. Like everything has succeeded, but I still feel empty. I still feel imposter. I still feel like, what am I doing? I had no like real guidance, you know? And, and that's the time that I joked a lot about, like, I just want to join a cult. Like, I just want to like go and have some guru tell me what to think, what to do. I can cook food. I can work in the garden and, I don't have to think about this stuff. And it's funny because years later, like more recently, all of the people that were in my life that are upset with me for sharing my detransition story and joining Gays Against Groomers, they're all saying, well, you finally found a cult you always wanted to join. Hmm. And it's just like, well, I don't think you get it. Like you, we with that we are the cult. Like that I just wanted someone to tell me, like I wanted a father. I wanted like a paternal, like, hey, you're okay. Do, do this and you'll be fine. Um, and I never had that with my own dad. And I, even like the daddies that I would, you know, have sex with, they would give me tastes of that, that sort of like, oh yeah, we care about you, you know, but if I ever really needed help, they weren't there, you know, cause they had wives, they had, they had kids my age, you know, they weren't like, they couldn't have some crazy tranny like banging on their door in the morning. Like I need help. They just weren't there. So I felt like I felt I still always felt lost. Um, and then and I felt like I had been lying to everyone, all my friends, like people didn't know I was trans uh, people that did know I was trans. They only knew the like cherry picked version of like my life, my experience. And I just felt very inauthentic and I'm getting congratulated by people that do know that I'm trans for my authenticity and you know, how brave I am. Wow. You're like living your truth. But I, I didn't feel that. I felt like I was a lie. I felt like I was an imposter. And when I started to get really depressed, because, you know, I was a couple years off of medication. I think I was like two years off at this point. All my, like, queer friends were trans men. And I was like, oh, maybe they got it figured out. Maybe it's just better to be a man, you know? And so I, I just, like, in a manic episode, I just cut off all my hair one night and I stopped shaving, you know? And I started wearing, like, a binder. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to go by Austin again. Um, I, in my transition, my first transition, I went by Allison 
And uh, that was a name that was like one of my family had maybe picked if I turned out to be a girl. And I liked that name. But I was like, I'm just going to go by Austin. And I went by, they, I was like early they, them for a brief period. And then I went, I was like, he, him. But in the like two to three years that I lived like more masculine, people were buying it. You know, I would still get she all the time because, you know, facial feminization surgery, I guess my mannerisms, you know, um, my body, the, I transitioned young enough where that my musculature became more like leg heavy and upper body small. Um, whereas like the rest of the boys in my family are very leg skinny and upper body big. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, I think even just my mannerisms, like my hands always give me away. I'm just like, uh, you know, using my hands a lot. And when I like had friends who were saying things like, I don't understand why you detransitioned. You had, you know, nobody could tell you were trans. You had like the most successful transition I've ever seen. Um, nobody could tell like how, how I, I would do anything if I could have had that is what I heard some trans women say to me. And I was just like, well, maybe they're right. Maybe it is better because I still feel empty inside. I still feel like confused. Like I don't know what it is to be a man. I don't even know how to relate to men other than in this sort of like, Oh, you're going to be my daddy and I'll take care of you and you'll be nice to me, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And then the guys that were my age, I don't know. A lot of them just like, kind of i feel like they just treated me like the girl next door like oh like i don't want to date you but like yeah we can hang out you know it was a very um kind of like one of the boys in a in a weird way Mm -hmm. uh looking back in hindsight um because once they would find out i was trans it was like any kind of romantical thing would be immediately done which again was like like that heartbreak on heartbreak on heartbreak yeah and guys were always saying you know if you had the surgery, I would, if you were like, if you had post-op, if you were, if you transitioned fully, yeah, I would date you. You're amazing. I just don't want to date somebody with a penis, you know? But then it was like the daddies were obsessed with my penis. So I I just like, I was getting it from like both directions and very confused. And uh, I dated a few girls. I dated a few boys, but everything just always kind of fell apart. It was the guys always ended up dating females. The girls always ended up dating boys afterwards. Okay. Uh, So again, I was like a lot of people's experiment. Yeah. Uh, Okay. And then, so, so then you decided to re transition. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people, a lot of my friends were saying like, you're just internalized trans misogyny. That's just your internalized transphobia. You know, this is like the time when you have, you're like constantly being told you have to unlearn everything, you know, because every year the definition changes. So you have to unlearn 2006 definition to 2007 and now it's 2009 and you have to unlearn all three of those. And you're still the problem because you'll always be a white male. You'll always have white male privilege. You'll always have, you know, all these benefits that other people didn't have, you know, and it was just like, I was just like under this constant sense of confusion. And I do think that estrogen causes brain fog because I noticed that over the course of my different estrogens that I took, uh, when I was on Premarin, I was horny and very like coquettish. But when I started taking estradiol valeriate or valorate, whatever, however you say it, um, my like, I was less sexually driven 
and I was more emotionally like distraught all the time. Like I just felt like, uh, like, you know, dramatic, hmm. uh, and confused about a lot of things. And like, I was very jealous because pe- I would fall, I would, like get a crush on somebody. I'd really like them. And then they would basically diss me because they're like, Oh, you're not what I thought you were. And then I get mad and I'd like lash out, you know, hmm. uh, during that you know, detransition like, spell, did you uh, quit all of the synthetic hormones? I did. Okay. Yeah, the night that I cut off all my hair, I was like, I'm not going to take estrogen anymore, you know. And I just stopped. And then within probably like a couple months, I started getting more like facial hair. I started getting more like erections, like started feeling different than before. Um, and I started feeling like more... Like, because the the estradiol made me feel less sexual, but the testosterone, as it was starting to come back, made me feel more horny. So I started going out to gay clubs again. And then I, I like, was going to these gay clubs and and when men would see, like, you know, my body, they would be kind of turned off. I could see it in their eyes, you know. Um, I got, like, groped and felt up and, like, just a lot of unwanted touch. And I had an experience with a guy and I'm... And I said, I don't want to go any further. And he continued to go further. And I just like went into La La Land again. And that created again, like, I don't want to be gay. It's like this, I said, no. And he didn't, he didn't stop, you know? And of course my friends were like, you know, um, that's rape. And I was like, no, it, it wasn't that bad, you know? And like, Mm -hmm. I always kind of downplayed all the sexual trauma that I experienced. And I didn't even like, I didn't even tell anyone about my childhood experience until I was like 30. And I blurted it out because this woman who I was uh, in a situation with, with like a couple friends, she kept talking about how she was the only person that was sexually assaulted, like the only person. And I just like flipped out one day and I was like, you know, I, I my anger really hmm. unleashed. And I just, I remember being in the driveway of this house screaming you know, at like her boyfriend and some other people. And I was just like, that was the first time I ever admitted it. I, I told my grandma, she said not to tell anyone. I never told a soul after that. I, I told the therapist, but once we started talking about transition, it was as if like, oh, well, that's just, you know, I'm really sorry that happened to you, but yeah. you're not alone. That happens to other people too, you know? Yeah. Um, and I only saw that therapist for like a little bit over a year. And then I moved to Philly. And then I never had any real therapy. Uh, I went to some support groups at Mazzoni Center in Philly, but they were very like, uh, like yes and, not not really like nothing deep. Like yes, thank you for sharing your turn. You know, it was just like trauma bonding. Okay. Um. Uh, yeah. Hmm. So. So there was a lot. There's a lot of sexual trauma. Yeah. Yeah. And then, what's your what's your onboarding for retransitioning? You couldn't do it anymore. You couldn't be this halfway. I just, I felt like, well, it was, nobody's even buying that I'm a man. They're all like still treating me. I'm still getting sheed when I go to the store, even though I had short hair. And, you know, at that point I had my breast implants taken out. I had a capsular contracture on my right side. Um, And so that capsule started to harden and it was very painful and I had them removed. And so I had a flat chest and I would bind and then, uh, still didn't really fully pass as a man. I think I passed maybe as like an 18 year old, 
even though I was 30 at the time or just, just about 30, but it just felt like, we'll just throw in the fucking towel. All, all these, like Hmm. at the time I was, um, surrounded by a bunch of LGBT people who were starting to like all these guys who were just like gay were now transitioning and they were all taking estrogen and talking about how much better their life was. And I was like, well, maybe that's, maybe that is like, maybe I'm supposed to do that. Like, why did I, I felt like I had, I had given, been given this beautiful gift of transition and nobody could tell. And then I squandered it. Hmm. And then I was like, I want that back, you know, uh, because I had lost the adoration of the daddies. Um, the older men, they weren't, they weren't interested in me as like a gender fluid boy with huge scars on my chest. They, they wanted the shemale. They wanted that like fixation. And then as soon as I transitioned back, Oh, they're back again. You know, guess who's back? The daddies, you know, with their adoration and their love and their gifts and their hotel rooms, Hmm. you know, getting out to go to like Smith and Walensky for state dinners. And, you know, like it was just, it was just so crazy. What's your take on this phenomena, this um, otherwise straight man who has a shemale side hole uh, or, or side <laughs> chick with a dick? Like, a what's, funny way to put it. What's up with that? I wonder. Is it like I a safe kind of girlfriend? It's like, okay, well, I'm not actually cheating on my wife because there's no other vagina involved. There's going to be like no emotional commitment, no baby or anything like this. This is just, I get to be with a feminine person and then have a sexual transaction. Um, well, I really, I, I don't know what their deal is, but there it is a huge prevalence. Um, I think it's mostly like, I don't, I never experienced it with guys my own age. Yeah. I never really like met guys my age that were chasers. I had seen some guys chasers. my age who were dating other trans girls, but the people that were always hitting me up were people like my dad's age, you know, people 40 and up when I was in my twenties, people 60 and up. I mean, like I've, when I, I had clients that were like 80, you know, and they mm. were just like, Oh, I've never, I've dreamed about this my whole life, you know, and I've never done it will you be so, will you take care of me? Like, you know, not like, I don't know. There was just a lot of tenderness in them. And specifically a couple of them who I saw regularly, I watched them go from like unhappy, like kind of fat, depressed dudes to coming to see me once a week and then hitting the gym and like bought a new truck and like, you know, taking care of themselves. It was a very like, um, American beauty moment where, you know, the main character starts working out and he's feeling all young and hot and he's trying to relive his youth. Like I saw that happen to these guys who, you know, again, had kids my age and they were married and they would say things like, you know, my wife hasn't had sex with me in 20 years. My wife never gave me a blowjob, you know, and I felt bad for them. Like, yeah, that's kind of sucks. If you want to have these sexual experiences, like it's a bummer. Your partner doesn't want to give them to you. Um, it kind of sucks. You're going to go cheat on her with a transsexual that you met on back pages, but that's on you guys. Like, I don't take that, you know, I didn't break up any marriages. The guys did. Hmm. Uh, hmm. I don't think it was really the right thing for me to do morally, but I was young and I was just wanting that affirmation. And I wanted, I wanted that sort of, I hate, I don't want my dad to see this, but like, I wanted that relationship that, I saw people have with their father, like their father takes care of them. And 
you know, because I didn't really have that. I sought it out in these older guys and they were really caring and they, they would bring me nice things and gifts. And, you know, like I said, I've seen a lot of really nice hotel rooms and hmm. um, got to go out to really nice dinners and, you know, got given a lot of money hmm. over the years. Mm-hmm. And that was very exciting. And, you know, um, and I felt like in a way, especially as like the sex work, um, publicity was changing from like sex work negative, which is where I started. Like, you don't talk about that. It's very shameful. So now everyone is like, oh, we're so sex worker positive. We love sex work. And I'm like, but you, but you're, you're just like, you're doing this thing. That's not like you're on the internet. You're camming. That's not the same as like having sex with a random dude in a car, you know, outside of the art museum in Philadelphia, like chill, like don't equate. It's not the same, you know? And I saw a lot of trans girls doing really reckless stuff. And I did reckless stuff. Um, But I feel like I had a guardian angel over me the whole time that kept me from contracting any like permanent STD, kept me from being murdered. Although at times I felt like, oh, I have definitely put myself in a situation where I could easily go missing. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I do believe I have a guardian angel. So and other girls aren't so lucky. So when you re-transition and you go back online in that respect, what is the thought process toward completing the uh, transition with the uh, bottom surgery? And are you, are you given informed consent? Are you given the time to think through the consequences of that? Well, yes and no, because I would see like what people would say, but in that era, we're talking like 2000, 13 ish, the, you wouldn't really find negative experiences about sex change operations on the internet. It was always very like, Oh, it's so much better now. Even a gynecologist can't tell like very magical thinking. Hmm. And that's, that's how it's been for a really long time until like Reddit started coming out with all these like trans, um, transgender surgeries or all those forums. Um, you didn't really see regret. You just heard the same few lines repeated. No one can tell. Life is so much better. My orgasms, my boyfriend, you know, um, this magical thinking. Mm-hmm. And I got, I got an orchiectomy with a friend of mine and another friend um, who had had gotten an orchiectomy. We drove to Detroit, Michigan, to a suburb of Detroit to see a doctor who was a urologist. We got there at seven in the morning on a Saturday. He had already castrated somebody before we got there. Um, he basically, I went first, my friend went after me, but when he injected the lidocaine into my testicles, I'm sitting there in the chair. I, he, his phone rings, he goes in the other room and he goes, yeah, yeah. I just got two quick jobs and I'll be ready to tee off at nine. So be ready. I'll be there at nine. So he was, he was basically going to castrate three transsexuals, make $7,500 in cash and then go play golf by 9am on a Saturday. And he did my surgery, he did my friends, and we both had complications. He did a poor job stitching. I paid in cash. Uh, My friend used a credit card, but I paid in like cash that I'd been just like stacking aside. Um, And it was so traumatizing because he, it was really freaky. First of all, he looked like Otho from Beetlejuice. And he was playing like the high school musical soundtrack it was like young kids singing songs. It was playing in the room while he was doing it. 
he did it the same thing with my friend and we were both like what the hell was that about like that was really weird um and then yeah he stitched us up we were out of there by like 8 30 in the morning we went to starbucks because like i needed to get a coffee we weren't allowed to have any water or anything like that before i was like i need a coffee then we went back to the hotel room where we basically laid in agony for the next five days in a shitty like hotel suite outside of detroit and um my friend her stitches popped my stitches popped um hers were worse mine i used a butterfly to kind of hold them back together and it was all very like yeah this is just part of it you know this is just like part of part of being a tranny you know and the girl that we were with who was supposed to be our caretaker um she had been through this before and so she was just like yeah it's normal it's normal it's normal um this is how it was for me too and sadly she ended up dying in the ghost ship fire in uh, oakland a couple years after that there was a a warehouse party that caught on fire and a bunch of people died sadly she was one of them but i'm grateful for her because you know it would have just been me and my friend in that hotel room and we wouldn't have even known really what to do uh, at the time And so I healed up from that and I was like, okay, I'm good. I'm not going to get, I was traumatized. I'm not going to get any more surgeries. But one thing I don't think like non-trans people understand is the number one question you get when you're trans is, have you had the surgery? Do you think you're going to get the surgery? What do you think about the surgery? Don't you think you want it? Like it's, it's the number one thing people want to talk about. Um, What does it feel like? It's like, well, I haven't had it. I don't know. You know? And you just, then you hear like other girls that have gotten it. I went to Thailand. So I heard a couple girls that went to Thailand and they're like, oh, it's amazing. They took such good care of you. It's a beautiful result. You know, you look on the internet and you see like pictures of the result and it's like two dimensional, you know, but you don't see a three dimensional video or anything like that. None of the girls that had surgery ever let me see it before and i remember asking and then i remember being made to feel like i was weird i was creepy for being like can i see your pussy like oh sorry i don't know if i can say that but i want to see i want to know what i'm getting myself into but they wouldn't show me and then the pictures always looked really good on the internet and i was like oh yeah you know everyone's saying life is so much better their orgasms are better they don't have any trouble like the gynecologist can't tell like there's a lot of wishful thinking And I hate to say it, but a lot of delusion, Um, because in hindsight, having had the surgery, I have issues. Every single person I know that has had surgery, that's one that actually wants to be real, will say like, yeah, I have a problem. Yes, I had a complication. Yes, I have a stricture. Yes, I have dehiscence or necrosis. But they'll still tell you it was worth it. They'll still tell you it was the best thing I ever did. Mm. I won't tell you that. It was literally like the biggest mistake I ever made. But and I knew that when I when I took the when they took the like packaging and the bandaging all off and I saw how bruised and swollen I was, I was like, oh, oh, my God. I have been gaslighted into making the biggest mistake of my life. And I tried to cope with it. I, I for like, you know, four or five years, I was just like, yeah, I'm making peace with it. I'm like, it's it's better because I don't have to talk and I can wear yoga pants to the gym and I don't have to worry about like the squat rack, my balls popping out of the side. Like I could just like live a normal life, Hmm. but it wasn't normal because like every time I pee, I have issues every, like I can't even have a functional orgasm without pain. I lost at least 50 to 60% of my sensation. Nobody wants to talk about that stuff. Nobody wants to admit 
that that's really what happened to them. Um, and I think it's, again, it's like no man wants to be confronted with the idea that his penis will be removed. So a trans woman coming, having come from masculinity knows that that's the ultimate, like, thing that's going to make other people uncomfortable. So you just like, oh, everything's great, you know, and you keep it to yourself. And then you cry about it on an anonymous Reddit page. And then you get downvoted by all the people who want to keep thinking that everything is magical and the surgeon is great. And then, you know, that real experience gets downvoted down. So nobody gets to hear it. You know, they say, oh, well, she's hysterical. The worst thing is when people who tell you you got surgery for the wrong reason, which I've heard of like a hundred. Anytime I talk about my surgical what's regret, right, well, what's the right reason? I don't know. I've yet, I've yet to, I've yet to figure that part out. But they say, well, maybe you went to the wrong surgeon, or maybe you should have done more research. Um, maybe you should have done this. And it's like again, putting the blame back on the person. And I'm sorry to upset trans people, but medical doctors are taking advantage of us. There's no doubt in my mind that we're being lied to. Um, you know, I think there's a huge younger generation of autogynephilic transsexuals that are like, I think the older gen were homosexual mostly. And then of course there's like the crossies that become trans later on in life. But there's a lot of these young kids that are growing up on the internet. They're in their twenties and thirties. Now they're telling me, I don't know anything about being trans. You know, they come in my, TikTok and they downvote me, they flag, they get my videos post uh, banned. Uh, they tell me I don't have a right to speak for trans people because I'm not really trans. And it's like, well, honey, I transitioned, you're 15. Like, first of all, you shouldn't even be on my page. Second of all, sit down, shut up, listen, and save yourself from this agony. Hmm. You know, they don't want to hear it because they're still in that like echo chamber of yes, I am. When did that? And, when did that break for you? I guess the, the surgery wasn't what you had expected. Yeah, the surgery wasn't what I expected. Um, the losing the sensation was uh, a big part. The painful orgasms were a big wake-up call. Because everybody always said, oh, they're so much better. Oh, I feel so much more in my body. You what's, know, and then um, here's... Sorry, what's painful no, about it? Is it just like the contraction is causing a lot of tension yeah. and the destabilized it feels like there's something inside me that wants to release like an orgasm you know but it can't so it hurts um and it's probably because somewhere inside of me there are like crimped tubes and whatever you know systems that no longer can function um so when I have an orgasm, it's like my body is telling this thing to release something, but I can't, it won't go anywhere. So then I end up getting these like sharp pains in my abdomen and it's just not even worth it. And then also like, if you hook up with a guy or a female, they're used to, a female is used to a real vagina, a man is used to a real penis. So when they see something that's neither one nor the other, there's confusion. There's, you know... There's also like sex reassignment surgery is a sewing project. They take so they take parts of the glands and connect it to the scrotum and parts of the shaft and connect it to the urethra. So there's like all these different pieces, like a crazy, just put together. That's not the way it's designed to be. So when sex happens, there's friction, there's rusting. Those materials have different tense tensions and tensegrity and there's tearing and you know it can be really really traumatic and i'm blessed in the fact that i did not get 
full depth surgery. Um, I knew that because of being on hormones for 20 years, my penis was very small. So I knew that I was only going to end up getting like an inch unless I had a skin graft from my thigh. And I didn't want to have a big skin graft on my thigh. So I just said, well, I'll just do minimal depth. That way, one, I don't have to dilate. And two, like, you know, if I need to, I need to be a bottom, I can still bottom in the old fashioned way. Um, the original bonus hole, not the new branding of the bonus hole, but the, the butt. Like that's worked in the past. It'll be fine. And I guess it was just a lot of like bargaining, yeah. you know, yeah. um, and okay. a lot of like mental gymnastics. Okay. And, so when, do, when does it, so there's a lot of stress on, on this um, illusory structure that you erected around yourself, but when does it start to crack irrevocably where you can't deny that? Basically the pandemic. Um, I I had been post up for like three years when the pandemic happened. Um, and I was living in a house with um, someone who I believe is like a hypochondriac or a germaphobe. And I didn't really think it was that big of a deal when it came out. It was like about oh, two weeks, whatever, you know, I'll just mind my own business. But my roommate really did. So me and the other person that lived there, we both ended up moving out. She moved into her van. I moved into my forerunner. And, Earlier, back in like September of 2019, I found a nudist beach in Tucson. Like, there's a canyon where a lot of people go back there and nude sunbathe. And it was, I had never been fully naked amongst strangers before. Um, at this point, you know, I had full bottom surgery, presented 100% as female. I never had any issues. Like, people were never rude to me or anything. They were very actually like welcoming and loving. And it started out before the pandemic where people would just say like, hi, and sunbathe and kind of keep to themselves. But when the shutdown happened and all the businesses were closed, I was already camping out there. And I was like, well, I guess we'll just ride this out. And then it this like really beautiful community formed out of that, where it was like anti-vaxxers and hippies and you've got like military dudes and you've got a former sheriff's deputy who's retired. There was a fire chief retired like, you know, there were all these people from different walks of life, Republicans, Democrats, you know, Christians, Satanists, hippies, burners, like the whole, everyone was just out there in the sun, you know? And these are all people that LGBT people, these like cisgendered people, if you will, I had always been told that they would kill me if they knew that I was trans, you know, they hate trans people, they would murder us, but they were never mean to me. And and I saw trans people, I saw female to males come down with like top surgery, but still with their vaginas. I saw lots of trans women come down non-operative. So they had their penis, their balls, but they had boobs. Um, and they were never beaten or murdered or anything. They were actually just like, everyone was really nice to them. So at that point I started like realizing, oh my God, that's a lie. These people don't want to kill me. They're so nice to me. My, my supposed like LGBT queer friends thought I was like, you know, an anti-masker and they didn't want anything to do with me. And then these people are taking me in, you know, you got this old dad who is like bringing me McDonald's big breakfast in the morning. Cause you know, he knows I'm living in my car in a Canyon hmm. and there were other people camping and people really started to form this community. And I had never been in a community like that before I had lived um, in a couple, I'd lived in peripherally with, queer people in houses uh, on an organic farm in Alabama. 
around a community in Tennessee, which was like LGBT, uh, but radical queer. Um, and there were always drama and infighting and problems. But this community seemed like really just like, oh, yeah, we love you. Just have fun. You know, go swim and do it at hula hoop, whatever you want to do. There was an archaeologist who taught everybody how to make arrowheads. So one day we're all sitting around in a circle during the pandemic. Everyone out in the world is freaking out and we're just naked smoking weed and making arrowheads. <laughs> and it was so cool. You know, I was like, wow, my life, this is the life I live, you know. <laughs> but I was still like unhappy in my body because people weren't like, they didn't know my trans history. They didn't mm. know really much about me. And I was very secretive about stuff. And yeah. um, I saw trans people coming down and nobody was talking talking bad about them nobody even misgendered them they were just like oh she her you know to to these people who were very clearly like you know not very passable um and it was just like this like level of mutual respect that i hadn't seen in the queer community where everyone had some sort of judgment about something and if you're in a group of like six queer people the moment one of them walks out of the room everyone is like whispering and talking terrible about them and and I had seen people who had dissenting opinions from the group thing get ostracized. Um, and I didn't want that to happen to me. And then finally, once I realized, oh, these people are full of shit. They don't know anything. They're, they're like, literally, these are they're supposed to be like anti-authoritarian, anti-government, free thinkers. And they're literally telling me I have to take an experimental vaccine. They're telling me I, I'm killing black and brown people because I don't want to wear a mask. Like they're, they're telling me all these crazy things and it's all BS. And I started dismantling. And then um, I just felt like, well, I, I saw like young twinks. I saw effeminate gay boys on the beach being nice to each other. And it just seemed like t I realized that in the 20 years, the world that I could have never imagined had become the norm. You know, if you'd have told me at 19 that one day in 20 years, like trans people will be able to live amongst normal people and it'll just be fine. I, could, I wouldn't have believed that until I saw it. And then I was like, wow, you know, there's these gay boys. A couple of them are drag queens. They're calling each other sister and stuff. And like that would never have flown in 2000. And um, mm -hmm. I realized, oh, my God, I think I've made a horrible mistake. I also had a friend before the pandemic. I don't want to get too into it. He had a phalloplasty and having seen my own experience and having seen what that actually was, I was mortified for both of us. And I felt like we had been manipulated by big, big pharma, you know, into believing that this would fix us. And, um, hmm. like I, I just, I really started to wake up and realize, Oh my God, I don't even know if I believe that there are trans people anymore. I think there's gender non-conforming people and people that decide to transition and live their life. But um, pre-pandemic, just to back up, I was volunteering at an LGBT youth drop-in center in Tucson that was ages 13 to 23. And over the course of the time that I was there, I saw a lot of problems. I saw a lot of comorbidities in these young kids who there were several there that were starting to take puberty blockers. They had the Lupron implants. Um, we had a top surgery fundraiser for a 16-year-old. Um, there were kids who went there that identified as furries. You know, there were kids that like they were so uh, enraptured by their own disabilities that they wore them like merit badges. And I was like, what is going on here? You know, like, this is weird. 
And um, that's really when I started waking up to like, I don't think kids should be into this because before that I was like, wow, yeah, kids, you know, man, if I was a kid and I hadn't been able to do this, I could live a normal life. But this was before the science of like, even Marcy Bowers, the WPATH president saying, it's like a Faustian bargain to have surgery, you know, like before all that stuff came to light with like, hmm. what is a woman? I am jazz. I just noticed that there were things that these kids are like, oh, there's autism, there's obviously depression, there's disassociation, you know, these kids are cutting themselves, that's not being addressed, um, they're having sex with each other in the laundry room, that's not being addressed, like, everyone has a million different modifiers to their gender, we have zizir, zazem pronouns now that we have to keep up with, and I was like, there's something's going on here, this is not, I can't put my finger on it, but it's not right, so I left. And I left on good terms with them. And having seen that and having my own experience, I kind of really woke up to the fact that, like, no, I don't think kids can consent to this. Especially since, like, the de like the desistance and the tr detransition numbers are rising. You know, statistics don't lie. You know, they can say, like, numbers are racist or transphobic, but numbers don't lie. You know, and mm -hmm. we're seeing those numbers. And if, you know, like the Dutch protocol has been turned around and Tavistock Clinic is being shut down, like these, that's only going to be a matter of time before it's done here. But unfortunately, there's so much money to be made. Oh, yeah. Um, I think that's what it all boils down to is lifetime patience. And I am one. So. Yeah. So, I mean, what does detransition even mean for you? Well, I don't a, even know a because mindset, like, but it's a mindset yeah. for me. I have, I, in my like re relation, like my relationship with God and getting, um, uh, basically admitting that I had all of this wrong the whole time. I believe, um, in prayer that one of the things that God was putting on me was that I needed to detransition my delusions first. My delusion was that I was a woman, that I could become a woman, that a doctor could turn me into one, you know, like that's delusional. It's not, real like my chromosomes will never change my hands will never change like you know there's always parts of me that will give me away as a male um those same things that i tried to hide from in transition are now giving me away as they're they're like they're not letting me be that male that i was supposed to be you know that like god intended and i see that you know, gender nonconformity is really not that big of a deal if our society wouldn't put so much pressure on boys being one way and girls being another. We could celebrate the fact that, like, if gender really is a spectrum, like the left always loves to say, mm -hmm. why do we need to change anything? You know, if a boy can wear nail polish, why does that mean he's a girl? Like, why are we regressing to such archaic 1950s gender stereotypes? Um, but I say that to, like, trans people, and they, they say, like, I'm crazy. You know, that they say that there's a right wing talking point like, that, oh, I, I have Tucker Carlson brainworms in my head. They always say Tucker Carlson, like, where'd you hear that Tucker Carlson? And I'm like, no, honey, it's called 22 years of reality. It's 22 <laughs> years of living in a transgender body, hmm. dealing with society and constantly being told what's true today is not true tomorrow. You know, and that's why, like, I, I feel that there is this sort of Maoist agenda being perpetrated. I used to think it was Marxism, but now I'm like starting to realize, oh, I think it actually is like more Maoism, you know? Um, maybe they do want us to celebrate all of our identities so that we are easily distinguishable so they can 
you know, load us up into the trans protection camps to keep us safe and then, you know, get us out of society. Like, hmm. It's happened before. It happened in the 60s. It's probably going to happen again. Uh, we'll just rebrand it as this sort of rainbow capitalism. You know, we'll have a safe flag space. on it. So yeah. Safe space. No, yeah, Zyklon B. Exactly. So I, I don't know. Like, when I started talking about this, all of my friends started saying I was crazy. I was listening to Alex Jones too much. Like, you know, putting the blame on me for questioning narratives. And it's like, well, I thought our whole community was about questioning narratives. We've been told that what a boy is for our whole lives. And we're saying, no, that's not what a boy is. A boy can be anything. A girl can be anything. But then when you go against that, people, they see it as apostasy. They see it as a personal attack on them. Some of the the hardest like messages that I've gotten from people that I would consider friends in my life have been um, them telling me I'm attacking them by just sharing my own experience, yeah. by talking about how this doesn't work. It's a scam. You know, I literally feel like I was gaslit and yaslit by doctors and LGBT people into believing that you could become anything you want to be, that gender doesn't matter, sex doesn't matter, a man can give birth, a man can, you know, can be a birthing person, you know, males breastfeeding. I posted a video about that whole debacle that a couple weeks ago with like some trans women that were taking all these like hormonal concoctions to breastfeed. Um, and they were called, these trans people were telling me I was transphobic. And it's like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm just saying like, what should be normal, what should be accepted as fact by Bio biological males and females are different. And that's okay. You know, it's okay for a man to be effeminate. It's okay for a woman to be masculine. We should celebrate that as a society. If we truly want to love and accept people, you know, if being trans is all about acceptance, we have to accept ourselves first, you know? And I, even throughout my transition, I always knew that I couldn't get a period. I couldn't give birth. Like it was just like rooted in pragmatism and reality. But then the new generation's coming up and they really believe that there's absolutely no difference between a female and a transgender woman. And the the fact that I can't even say that on TikTok without being, you know, knocked down. People can't say that on YouTube without having their stuff pulled. It's crazy, you know. Um, hmm. How did we get so far in so few years, you know? And... And it really just makes me wonder what agenda is behind all this thing. And and COVID really opened my eyes to the fact that like most conspiracy theories that I grew up hearing are true. Um, a lot of them have been proven, you know, and mm. COVID, I, everything I felt about COVID that people told me I was crazy, everything I felt turned out to be right. And so I feel 100% vindicated in what my gut told me then. Mm. And I just feel like as you get older, you really learn to trust your internal compass, your, your gut more. Um, and I never would have thought 20 years ago that you would see a rainbow flag on every single building, every classroom, every bank, every office building. Like, I never would have thought that. I never would have even wanted that, you know. Um, most of the gay people I know who I was friends with back then are also, like, abhorred by the idea that we're bringing kids into it. But they're, we're all being called, you know, bigots and homophobes and, you know... LGB, drop the T, you know, like it's like, it's hmm. what happened to reality, you know? And that's why I'm so glad I found gays against groomers because here are gay people 
some trans people in that organization too saying, wait a second, hold up, what are we doing? You know, and what's, what are we ushering in by allowing this? And that's my big fear. Um, that's my big fear is that children who cannot consent, who also suffer from magical thinking will basically be yes anded into all kinds of stuff. Like there was a, a, a child transitioner who came out at 12, like five years ago, male to female, was the darling of the left. As soon as they turn 18, they have an OnlyFans. They're making videos of themselves masturbating. They're making a fortune, you know, and everyone's like, yeah, girl, get your coin. And I'm like, I thought transitioning was going to save this person's life. And here it did. It just denigrated them into sex work. You know, like, what's that kid going to do now? There, There's millions of images all over the Internet of them, you know, with dildos up their butt. Like, that's horrible. This is a child. I'm sorry, 18 is still a kid. You know, just because it's like the age of consent doesn't mean that they're 100% developed and grown up. You know, when they're 30, they might regret all those images. I know I regret the pornography that I made in my early 20s. It's still out there on the Internet. Hmm. What can I do about it? I just I just grow and know that by saying, hey, maybe you don't actually want to do that. Maybe you do want to go get a trade job. Maybe you do want to like learn an actual skill instead of just being affirmed by these daddies who have sexual fantasies. You know, um, hmm. I don't know. I, I really worry because it's all been normalized, you know, especially with that young kid who transitioned, was on Lupron, cross-sex hormones at like 13, all for what? So they could hmm. be a porn star. That so there's doesn't seem right. There's there's got to be some place between being vilified for your sexuality in the Christian context and damned to hell and told that you can never see your mother if you accept the way you are and um, this full normalization that if you deny a child his or her sexuality you're, you're oppressing it and and so you should just give the children over to whoever wants them because that's just a natural problem. There's got to be some place there and just in your own life i suppose and your own walk through faith and you know having spiritual experiences as a child having a really tough time with christianity as an organized religion going through the absence of spirituality and organized religion and then coming back through to some sort of spirituality like how do you distinguish christ from christianity and how do you find some sort of guiding, you know, light or a compass, moral compass for yourself and that you can stand on and then promulgate through your speaking and through your sharing. Well, I mean, I think it all this really goes to the prodigal son parable. You know, two things that Jesus said that really have always struck with me. The prodigal son, because it's very obvious, you take your inheritance, you go off, you're all excited to live your life. You realize you're going to get used up by people who have ulterior motives, you know, whether that's they want to have sex with you or they want to change your body or they want to have some sort of ownership or avarice over you, hmm. uh, like this possession. Um, then you realize, oh, I don't have anything left to give and they abandon you. But your father is still there. God still welcomes you back, you know. Um, the other thing that I take really uh, to heart is when Peter is asking Jesus, like, how many times do I have to forgive people that hurt me? Um, I talk about this a lot because it's like the number one thing from the Bible that I took with me throughout my prodigal and apostasy was that um, if somebody continues to harm you and to hurt you, 
you have to keep forgiving them because you've been forgiven an infinite amount of times for things you didn't even know that you you did you know you were you dishonored your mother and father you were rude to someone you stole some pennies out of the you know child's the coin tray like you do these little like micro things and you're forgiven because all of that was paid for at the cross um hmm. and you have to remember to extend that grace because you're under this grace um a friend of mine angel told me that um grace is giving you what you don't deserve and mercy is not giving you what you do deserve and so I feel that mercy from God, it, for me, it should be death and punishment. It should be, you know, all these terrible things. But I know that my relationship with Jesus is a relationship. It's not like bound to this Pharisee mindset of like, follow all these rules. We're not perfect. God knows that. That's why he sent his son here so that we could stop driving ourselves crazy, trying to be perfect all the time. You know, the new commandment from Jesus is to uh, love God above all else and love your neighbor as yourself. But he also commands us to turn from our sin, pick up our cross and follow him. So you don't get to have this grace and mercy um, given to you. It is given to you, but you don't get to have it free and willy nilly if you continue to do things you know are wrong. Mm -hmm. And so for me, like, if I want to stay in God's grace, if I want to live um a life that i can be proud of i have to say like what i did in the past was wrong and i can't continue to replicate those things because i see what it got me i see by having sex with a bunch of men all it did was make me feel more disassociated and it ruined my own relationship to having sex so like when i meet somebody and i fall in love with them and we have sex it's ruined by all of this baggage and experience hmm. and i don't think a, i don't think a 16 year old who's starting to transition can even comprehend that, you know, when the world is saying like, everything is perfect, go have fun, do whatever you want to do. You know, I don't think that is actually going to help them have positive experiences with their body, with their spirit, with their relationship with their friends and their neighbors. Um, you know, I don't think like continuing to do something, you know, doesn't serve you is going to get you anything, but bad things. And that's after 22 years of doing the same thing over and over again, trying to get a different result. Like I realized, oh my God, I actually did these things. I'm at fault. I'm deceived. I deceived others. You know, I'm part of it. Mm -hmm. And so um, asking for forgiveness, knowing that God will forgive you, um, but you can't just be forgiven and go about your life and do the same thing. You have to turn from all that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think the modern evangelical church has kind of gone off the rails in both directions with uh, putting rainbow flags all over the church. And then also saying like all gay people and you know, transgenders should be like murdered, you know, cause I've seen that from both sides of the church and that's not the message. That's not what Jesus was trying to talk about. Um, Jesus says where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am also with them. So when two or three people are talking about God, that is equivalent to the church, you know, um, when I see the American church, I feel sadness and shame for it because they were given, one, the the seemingly infinite prosperity of this, this country, and they squandered it over their own greed and their own, like, hiding bad things in the shadows, you know, not, not saying like, oh, yeah, that person's a molester. We got to get rid of him. You know, they hide him and protect him and banish the child. And 
um, I think that the modern church has deserved what it has coming to it, you know, in terms of, yeah, it makes sense why 10,000 churches a year close. Um, people just don't want to hear the same crap anymore. They don't want to go to church and be told, you know, like, oh, adultery is fine. Like, oh, I, the preacher cheated on his wife, but you homosexuals, like, you guys are going to hell. You know, people see that hypocrisy and they're tired of it. But there are people that have sprung from that church that are forming, like, a new church. You know, they call it the emerging church or there's, like, the hmm. the seeker-friendly church where go and sing songs and feel really good. Hmm. Um that is kind of taking over this like corporatization of church. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it feel, it fills a void for some people, but for other people, especially people I think that come from like the Pentecostal, the charismatic church, we still want that, like that fire. We still want that charismata. We want the tongues. We want the spirit. We want, you know, the spookiness of the Bible because it is like literally the spookiest, craziest series of tales, you know, and, when I think about what I want to see for the church in America is more of like an Acts chapter two, where it's like the Jesus is dead. He's been resurrected. He's he's the, the apostles and the disciples are left behind. They don't know what the hell to do next. And on this, on Pentecost, you know, 50 days after Easter, um, they start getting drunk in the spirit. They start speaking in strange tongues. They start hearing and understanding. And I've seen that happen in churches. I've seen that happen at revivals. And I know it's real. I know 100% with my heart of hearts, it's real and I've experienced it. Um, I think small churches are forming. The church I go to in Tucson is like less than 50 people. Um, it's very powerful. It's all about a community. Um, and it, part of that community is holding each other accountable. Um, and, you know, I got baptized a couple months ago and that was profound because I got to leave so much of those burdens in the water behind me. I didn't, I was like, I'm not, I'm, I knew when I was getting baptized, I was just going to leave it in the water and come out a new creation. And that's, that's what it's all about, you know, is, is grace and mercy and uh, just knowing that God loves us and he is the father. He is the great I am, you know, the father that I never had, the father that a lot of people never had. Um, there is protection. There is love. And just knowing that, Hey, somebody out there, above me has my back makes me feel like invincible you know mm-hmm. um, in a way you, that I never felt when did you uh, what prompted you to speak out about um, your life online well so my brother has some kids and one of them is starting kindergarten um, and I also have a niece and I just like I'm seeing these pictures, these videos on TikTok, you know, like on during the pandemic, everybody was on the internet. We're all watching stuff. And we see, I see grown men with pigtails dressing like six year olds saying, I'm going into the women's bathroom. And I'm thinking, well, my niece is going to be in that bathroom. I don't think that's right. Like, I don't have a problem with the like trans people who go out of their way to assimilate and live their life. Like, you know what, use, use whatever bathroom you feel safe with. But for me, females are telling me they don't want us in there. So I honor that and I respect that. And I also just like, I'm okay with using a single stall bathroom, even though they're fewer and far they're in between. It's like, okay, well, at least I know I'm not going to upset men or women. I just have my own space. But I know that my, my little niece is going to be in one of those bathrooms one day when, you know, a 65 year old man comes in there dressed like a six year old. And I don't want her to see that. I don't want her 
to think that that's normal, you know, and I'm sorry if that means I'm a bigot, whatever, call me. I've been called worse. Hmm. Um, I want kids to be safe. I don't want them. I don't want pedophilia normalized. And I think that's where we're headed. Trans age is now the big thing all over the Internet. It's all over TikTok, you know, grown people dressing like babies, wearing diapers, um, being coddled by other people and affirmed and all this. And it's like, you know, when when you say like, no, I don't know, I'm not going to have a part of that. They say that that's, you know, bigotry and violence. And and it. I don't remember who said it. I wish I could take credit for it. I think it was Jordan Peterson. They say like when you're affirmed all the time, when you're always told yes, no feels like violence. And it might not even been him, it could have been someone else, but that feels so real because I see people and they're just being told like, yes, you're beautiful. You are so amazing. And then it's like, no, I actually don't want to see the barista at Starbucks wearing a diaper. I'm sorry. Like I'm going to call, I'm going to call that a problem. I don't want to see that. Um, and that's the world that we're in now. Like, if you just look on Twitter, you'll see stuff you wish you never even could dream of. Man-made horrors beyond all comprehension. Mm-hmm. And that's where we're at now. And so and, um, that's what prompted you to speak. Yeah, because I, I feel like they are going to grow up in a school system where this is all normal. And, you know, there's a million genders. And I see that my niece loves to play with dolls, but also loves to play with Legos. Does that mean she's a boy? because she likes engineering and likes building. Oh my God. What if, what if, you know, thank God my brother and his wife are based enough to realize that that's totally normal for kids to want to play with each other's toys. Um, but there are plenty of parents out there that would immediately sign them up to the children's hospital to get them a sex change. Mm-hmm. And if you just look at the numbers, like how many clinics have opened in the last 10 years, like that's astounding and staggering and scary, but you know, anything you speak against it, they, Mm-hmm. They want to call you a name. And I just say, like, this is a hill I'm ready to die on because I've been on the inside. I know where it's headed. It's definitely headed in a direction. And I don't want it to go there. So by stepping back and saying, I abhor this, like, I know I'm not going to, don't, I don't believe in trans age any more than I believe in trans race, more, more than I believe in transgender. It's all just, you know, feelings are in our heads. They're not, like, the way I feel, you can't perceive that. It's all in my head. So why would I require society to affirm my feelings if they're going to change in five minutes, you know? Hmm. And I just think we're heading in a, in a kind of a scary situation. And since I started my TikTok, I have almost every single day a message from someone that says, my niece is going to transition. My baby, how do I explain it to my kids? My dad is transitioning, um, you know, like, what do I do? What do I do? And I don't know what to tell them. I just tell them to pray about it, to say that you love them. They don't need to change their body, that they need to accept the fact that they're a man, that that there are effeminate men in the world. There are effeminate women. Um, you can never be what you are not. And if you allow, I'm just going to get religious for a second. If you allow the deceiver, the enemy, the devil, to tell you, you can become something that you physically cannot be. And you believe that there's, no stopping what you will accept believe is true if you say oh a six-year-old can consent to having sex with a 45 year old yeah that's fine that's opening the gateway to that and we're already seeing that you know there's like the un they said that they want to basically like decriminalize age of consent with people and i think we're heading in a very scary situation mm-hmm. and, uh, 
that caused me to really wake up and say, hey, I was actually a part of this. I pushed this agenda. And I don't think it's right. And um, luckily, I'm getting a lot of people reaching out to me and and saying, you know, thank you for telling your story. I've met I've met some other detransitioners who have all said they had a childhood sexual experience with an adult or somebody that they trusted that traumatized them. So I 100% believe that they're, at least with biological males, that is a huge part of why most of us transition. Yeah. Or at least why we get confused, you know. The younger autogynophiles, I don't quite understand. The, like, trans cells, um, I don't really understand them. But I fear them because they're the ones that are pushing a lot of new stuff as normal. And, uh, you know, not to give into the whole slippery slope mantra but yeah Hmm. we are in a slippery slope now and so it it scares me yeah so the the world looking as you describe it um or the coming world looking as you describe it what about your own life how does your own future look to you at this point in time well i am i just i'm trying to get back on testosterone um i a friend of mine gave me a shot the other day of his testosterone and i feel i felt like hmm, this actually feels interesting feels different um i'm ready to experiment and see what that will do like my body obviously is designed to have a hormone i deprived it of that hormone i supplemented that with an opposite one and maybe i just had low t back in the day and maybe if i had taken a a higher dose of testosterone or hit the gym or something maybe a lot of that dysphoria would have alleviated Hmm. so i just now i focus on um being more comfortable in my body eating is a big thing sleeping drinking water um talking to specifically like young younger men who are feminine and saying like hey there is a place for you in this world you don't need to become something you're not um, most of them don't want to hear it, but at least I'm out there saying it, you know, if I'm that crazy person on the street corner screaming about it, like I'm content with that, hmm. you know, that the left can't take anything from me anymore. Like there's people, they don't want to be my friend. That's totally fine. They can't take my job. They can't take my life. They can't take my house, no matter how many times they try to like make me feel bad about myself. Um, and they are the ones that are being the meanest towards me about this whole stuff. Like, it's funny, I never would have thought that, like, my community would be more right-leaning, but um, they seem to be more accepting and understanding that, like, yeah, this is an actual an issue um, in our society, and some want to full-on eradicate it. Others want to say, like, well, how can we appease everybody in this sort of libertarian, like, everyone gets to have their own, you know, freedom. Um, so I, I'm curious to see how it goes. Um <laughs> I, I do like talking about this stuff. I like talking about Jesus. I, I do want to go to ministry school um, because I do feel like um, God is opening up doors mm. right now. Mm-hmm. And like even just talking to you, talking to Rebecca Johns, uh, doing a radio show last week. Like uh, I'm just got offered a church. Like I'm going to talk at somebody's church at the end of August, which okay. is scary, but exciting. Mm. Um, and I just feel like God is opening up doors and, um, instead of just standing on the threshold and looking in and running from that responsibility, I'm like finally ready to step into it and be like, yeah, this is the plan. I guess losing my penis to gender ideology was part of the purpose hmm. to say, hey, it doesn't work. Okay. You know, you need to focus on loving yourself first. Yeah. Um, and that's just how I've made peace with it all. Hmm. And how, how can people swallow? 
Yeah, well, yeah, um, absolutely. If people want more of your witness, how do they find you? Well, I'm on uh, TikTok at austin.unbridled, uh, um, where I share my experience. I talk about things having seen from inside the trans community. Um, I'm going to start a YouTube pretty soon, but the most exciting thing is I'm in the process of starting uh, a ministry, a 501c3. Um, I have 14 acres in Arizona that my friend Birdie, who is actually the person who told me about you on your podcast a couple months ago. So I was like, oh, you should check out the conversations. And I got hooked. Um, But he lives out there and we're going to turn that into a retreat center. Um, where people who are just trying to get away from the internet, trying to get away from the world, just go out there for like a week or two, um, live in an off-grid situation. Uh, so like that paperwork is being done. I don't want to give away the name yet, but it's it's going to be very exciting. Um, and so I'm working on a website too, but that's all like, right now it's just TikTok. So reach out to me on TikTok. I follow everyone back. Um, my DMs are always open. Um, my email is unbridleyourself at gmail.com. Hit me up. I'll answer any questions. You know, I'll talk to anyone who wants to hear and I'll give you my number. You can, you can call me anytime. So Mm -hmm. just email me first. Well, Austin, thank you very much for, for being so candid with me about your, uh, the extensive details of your fraught existence. Um, do you have a, a, a steadiness inside of you that, um, I'm sure was hard won, but it's very evident that you are on an even keel right now that you're tethered to, to yourself and, and yourself is tethered to reality. So it's been a long journey, but I want to thank you specifically because I, um, I've seen you give a platform to many detransitioners when most people are telling us to shut up and that we don't have a right to speak. And, um, you know, for you and some of the other people that are advocating for us, I just want to give a big thank you to, because if it, if it wasn't for you guys sharing, um, our calls from the inside, uh, it wouldn't get out. You know, we'd be continued to be like downvoted and, yeah. and our voices would be stymied. So I'm grateful to you and thank you. And God bless you. It's my honor. And.